Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Spilling Ink Live. I am the marvelous Jay. As you see, I've abandoned human names. I'm just going with a letter now. Um, and I'm here with our lovely host, Katie Salitis, out in Las Vegas. Hi, Katie. Hello. So I, I think there's a story here. You went from being the Jason Lavelle to just Jay. Why is that? Well, you know, I'm I'm slowly breaking down these walls. I, eventually, I'm going to announce to the world that I'm I'm actually an alien, and we don't have where I come from. Um, yes, but I'm not ready to announce that yet. So for now, I'm just I'm I'm just cutting down on the letters as much as I can. Uh, so it's so great to see everybody this evening. I can't actually see you, but I know the millions of people that are watching can see me. Um, and I do want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Creative Edge Publicity, um, who helps to make this show possible um, to give us this lovely video platform and make the audio podcast possible as well. Uh, Creative Edge Publicity, your brand, your future. They are advocates of collaboration and believers in partnerships in the ever-changing literary industry. So thank you so much, Creative Edge, for all your help and support with keeping this show going. But we have two reading that. I know. Don't I? I I pass as human pretty well, don't I? You do. You do shockingly so. <laughs> well, well, we have we have two guests tonight that are brand new to this show. We have Michael Dees and oh, Lauren. Lauren's comment popped up right over right when I was going to read Deborah's name there, so I didn't know your last name, Deborah. Deborah Gates. Yes. So I'm going to let these two and uh, introduce themselves. Whoever wants to go first, actually, we'll do the uh, Deborah. You could go first and tell us all about yourself. Hi, everybody. My name's Deborah Yates, and I'm from uh, Ohio, and now I live in Florida. Uh, my book uh, is called Woman of Many Names, and I wrote a book about my seventh great-grandmother, who was Alaska Gayu, beloved woman of the Cherokee Nation before the Trail of Tears, the removal. Wow. That, that sounds pretty intense. Is it, is it intense? Is it a tearjerker? It is. Okay. It, it's, it's a happy and a sad story all in one. It's a, um, mostly an homage uh, to my seventh great-grandfather, Kingfisher. There wasn't a lot in history written about him, so I wanted to make sure that he was included um, in her story. And so it basically focuses on Nanyahi, uh, Nancy Ward, from a young age until she was around 19 years old and the loss of her first husband, Kingfisher. Wow. Well, I, yeah, that, that sounds incredible. That sounds like good uh, documentary material right there. Oh, I'm sure it would be good something. <laughs> uh, yeah, she I, was quite quite a character. Um, the king of, of England, I think it was King George III, declared my uh, Native American family the emperors and the princes and princes of America. And um, my eighth great grandfather sent a raccoon shaped crown to England to him and they called it the crown of Tennessee and um, that went over on a ship called the Fox back in the you know late 1600s I believe if I'm correct on that um, a fascinating story you know that 
you know, deserves to be told. It's an American story. And um, I think it's very important that young women have another role model in this life other than, you know, maybe some other role models that might not really be the best role models. This woman actually existed. She's not a cartoon character. And um, she did a lot of great things. She saved a lot of people's lives, a lot of the settlers and pioneers that would have perished had it not been for the intervention of Nancy Ward. And um, she knew great guys like Thomas Jefferson and Daniel Boone and Ben Franklin. And it's just quite a notorious character over time. Wow. Wow. That, that just sounds incredible. I, I've got some... Um, We've got some strange feedback type noise that I'm that I'm hearing. Are you guys hearing that? Sounds like a monster growling. It's yeah. a yeah. subscribed humming bus. It's my um, the photo of the, is actually a original oil painting that's behind me is is the cover of my book, and that was done okay. by a um, lady here in St. Pete Beach, um, Dawn Fisher, lovely okay. artist. Oh, that's awesome. So cool. Uh, well, Michael, um, could you tell us about yourself and what you write? Goodness. Um, well, my main, uh, my pen name is Michael Dees. Um, my middle initial is D. And um, my mother always called me Michael D when I was growing up, usually when I was in trouble. <clears throat> but uh, as I... Uh, started writing these books when I told her that I had books coming out. Oh, she was so excited. And she told everybody that Michael D's got a book. Michael D's got this book coming out. And then uh, the month before the first of the three novels came out, she passed away. And so I said, well, then I'll change my name to Michael D's because these are Michael D's books. And so that's uh, that's my pen name, Michael Dees. Um, I retired last year after working as a physician for 40 years. And now I mow lawns for my son. And uh, I married late in life and had children uh, in my late 30s, 40s, and 50s. And uh, I realized that, uh, they did not know anything about who I was or before they came along. And then uh, my father passed into dementia in his last years. And he was a World War II tail gunner on a B-17 bomber uh, with a life expectancy of five missions. And he flew 26. But when we asked him if he would, you know, I was a, a boomer. And so we'd always ask my dad, hey, dad, what did you do in the war? What did you do this? And his comment was always, if you have to talk about it, you probably weren't there. <laughs> well, at the end of his life, uh, just before he descended and disappeared into dementia, he handed me his handwritten diary. And the diary was a compendium of every mission that he flew, what their casualties were, how many hours they were in the air, you know, um, where they went, who they saw, who they lost, landing with no landing gear, coming in out of fuel. And at the end of every single mission, the last sentence was always, we go again tomorrow. 
and just absolutely made it understand why he was so distant and why he had such a hard time making connections to people emotionally because everybody that he knew didn't make it. And uh, the last chapter in his, the last entry in his diary was when they came home and they had to fly the bombers home. And the shortest trip was from Morocco to Brazil. And so they flew as a squadron, but back then they didn't have weather radar. So they didn't know what was over the horizon. And out of a squadron of nine planes flying home, they lost three. And so even the last mission, so terrible. And I started realizing that all of the things that I grew up with, when I first met my father, we lived in the projects in Chicago, in the inner city, 700 West, just outside of the loop. And it was a cauldron of uh, ethnic diversity and violence. And my father brought us through all of that only for me to get drafted and go to Vietnam and find out that if you have to talk about it, you probably weren't there. And so I thought I'd better start writing these stories down before I descend into dementia like my father and never get a chance to share. So the first book is called Bless My Father because it was about uh, growing up in those times in the 50s after the war where everybody scrambled. And it's a historical fiction, hopefully with a little bit of humor, but also a hard one. The second book, For I Have Sinned, is the story of the son and the father together. But the last one comes out in two weeks is The Heretic, which talks about a struggle for honesty in our old age. And it follows the same characters through all three books. And uh, I think they're good. I think Lauren over here agrees with you. They sound amazing. Yeah. Yeah, they, they sound... I mean, Deborah and Michael, both both of your your writings sound incredible. I mean, they're and they're they're right up my alley too because I I love the historical stuff. I I love it that you can learn while being entertained, um, and I, I yeah. think that's the best kind of reading. Um, wow, those all sound incredible, um, and I I feel like there needs to be at least a companion novel uh, that's called We Go Again Tomorrow. Yes. Uh, because yes. if that's what he always said, oh man, I think that would fit so well. It would. Oh, wow. I, I'm, I'm interested the level of detachment that somebody would have to have to sure. do this kind of job <clears throat> every day, oh, knowing that they could, you know, possibly not be coming back, but they've got to get it done. They just they do it. Yeah. He writes yeah. uh, one of the chapters. Uh, they lose both their waist gunners and their navigator on one mission. And uh, and the plane is just shot to pieces. In fact, he says we're shot to pieces. And the next day or the next mission, they get a new plane. And he said, uh, they gave us a new plane. We're a new crew. We're all the guys that are survivors. He said, we don't show pictures of our girlfriends or talk about back home. We've learned our lesson. Wow. You have to go somewhere else mentally. I think um, 
you know, they didn't have a name, post-traumatic stress syndrome. When your father was doing what he was doing, they call it shell-shocked. And, you know, it's it changes and alters right down to your, your physical chemistry and, and alters who you are. And does it turn you into who you're supposed to be? Well, I, yeah, I guess so. But yes, writing about what you know makes, you know, your books more intimate. And, um, yeah. you know, I think to write a I'll good book, you, it has to be something that, you know, that you're deeply passionate about and that, you know, I know exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Michael, they Cameron. didn't have a name for PTSD when I came home either. No, dear, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't Michael, have a name. No, when I got in fact, uh, when I came home, um, you had to uh, back then you had to travel in your uniform. Uh, when I came back from uh, over oh, there. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. And uh, so you had to fly standby and you had to fly in your uniform in order to get standby tickets. Right. And I came in through San Francisco mm. in uh, 1972. Oh. And I walked that airport gauntlet with people throwing things, yelling I'm so at sorry. me, I'm so uh, spilling drinks on me, no. spitting on my shoes. Um, it was a different world back then, and uh, nobody talked about PTSD then either. No, they didn't. But thank you so much for your service and your father's service. It it, it means a lot yeah. to me, and, and I'm sorry for what you had to go through for the way people treated you. You know, my ancestors went through their, you know, trials and tribulations, and it seems like it's something that never stops. I ask the Jewish people. You know, they've they've been persecuted since we've been keeping records. So, you know, it's, you know, how do you change the hearts of man? I, I don't know. I don't know. I wish I had that answer because I could well, uh, right now. In the, in the second book, I try to detail some of those um, some of those emotions. Uh, first, um, the de- the emotions of the father who struggles with it every day. Um, and every night, but also with the son who thinks that um, because of what he saw and because of of how he came home, that he must not be worthy of uh, any kind of uh, a life. And so instead, he embraces crime and he becomes a criminal. And his and at first it's just criminal behavior. It's just criminal jobs, but it slowly descends into a point where he gets himself so badly in a mind that he can't get out. And he realizes that the only person that will understand and the only person that can save him is his father. father. So he has to go to him. Now I, I have a, a question. I actually want to ask both of you, uh, Michael. I'm going to give you a break for just a couple minutes here. I'm going to ask uh, this of, of uh, Deborah first because uh, you've you've just been talking for so long. I'm going to give you a chance to take a drink here. Uh, I've been talking too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I think no, we're all wonderful. I think we're all fascinated by what you're what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I I want to know um, from both of you what was it like to try to write in this headspace because you're both writing about um you know 
actual events or actual events that you've kind of fictionalized a little bit um, and things that were, were maybe pretty heavy, um, you know, things that were, were probably traumatic for the people that went through them or for yourself. Um, you know, what was it like to, to write a book in, in that kind of headspace and, and try to kind of live those experiences through your characters? You know, was that a difficult thing? Was it cathartic? You know, what, what, what did it feel like for you? Well, with my grandmother's story, I, I had, you know, a little bit of documented American history to, um, you know, that I studied. Um, I had stories as which my grandfather had and his brothers and sisters had shared with me back, you know, when I was a younger person. And I had just taken all those stories, you know, and weaved together the uh, what I could find documented in American history, plus my family's oral history. And yeah, it was really hard, um, you know, especially the era that they were, they were raised in. You know, women were not, you know, honored in the white culture the way they were in the Cherokee culture. Women always held high positions and, and honor and had um, a lot of say so in how the village was run, the structure of the social village. Nanihi actually did held the, um, you know, the power of life and death in, in her hands. One, one wave of her arm one way, one the other meant life or, or death, most literally. And that was a lot of power for, you know, anyone to hold, let alone a woman in the, in the 1700s. So her life was you know, difficult. And it was um, beautiful, I believe, all at the same time. She had to walk a, a red path, which would be the red path to war, to find out how to, to, to negotiate for peace, how to, how to gain the white path, you know, to peace. And she had wonderful teachers, both of the, um, her uncles were chiefs in the, in the tribe. Her grandfather was, you know, like I said, was, was uh, Matoy, who was the, you know, the emperor of the Cherokee Nation for, you know, quite a few years back in the 17, early, you know, 1700s and 1600s. And that just, you know, felt like it was a tradition, you know, just like, you know, people are, you know, you know, sons of musicians and, and actors, their children tend to have the same talent. So she was, you know, quite, quite a character in, and signed many peace treaties, wrote many peace treaties and saved a lot of lives. So it does become very um, overwhelming when you think of the, the scourges, the diseases that, you know, would run through villages and, you know, literally wiped out towns and villages and whole clans, you know, so it's, you know, kind of ties in even with today's, you know, what goes on today. So, you know, it's, it gets interesting. And yes, you do. You feel it. I felt it to my very soul. I, I lived every minute of that book. So you, um, you know, you just have to find peace in what, what you do. And I was very, um, I, I wanted it to go out as, you know, as, as a history book, as, you know, um, nonfiction, but I couldn't back up anything that, you know, was, you know, what I was saying, it's not documented in white man's history, what my family talked about, you know, 200 years ago and, you know, kept going. So now do you, in, in your book, I, I know your book is more of a, more of a history. Do you touch at all on, 
the the current situation and you know kind of the oppression and prejudice that's still happening today in regards to the indigenous peoples it is exactly the same basically i mean the parallels they just don't change you know then the and especially seeing what's going on you know in these last few years you know with and it, what's going on last night you know it's these things are just so deeply rooted in people and to be angry you're not going to change anything i mean and and my people were uh, the, the cherokee were angry too but that's not going to solve anything that doesn't change anything you have to be smarter than that you have to you know use your knowledge use your your time and, and the wisdom that you do have to do to do better you know Tearing up people's stuff isn't going to change anything. It just tears up people's stuff. And they end up with nothing? No, it's, it's not right. Just like it wasn't right what they did to the Cherokee. But we have, you know, as, as a group, you know, tried to stay together as much as possible. Those that could stay and work towards a better life. You know, okay, well, it's oils and casinos. Okay, well, it is what it is. But that money gets put to good use. A lot of people don't understand the, those monies that they raise at those casinos goes into education and health care and homes for Cherokee people. So, you know, it is a good thing. They don't allot it out, you know, a cash allotment in the Western band. But, um, you know, you ought to do good with what you've got to do and, and you can't be angry doing it. It's not going to change anything. It brings up interesting but sad point that we're still seeing the same prejudices, we're still seeing the same anger um, and the same fights over and over again. Yes. And, and, you know, we say, you know, you have to be the change, you have to do good and, and set the example, but it never seems to go away. Does that, does that mean that we don't have hope of it ever getting better because it's constantly just beating us down with the same things over and over again? What I wonder is, is the more we're blended as human race, you know, I'm a mutt, I'm, I'm Scotch, I'm Irish, I'm Indian, I'm 57. Indian, Indian. Yeah, we're mutts. So that should bring compassion as we bleat some of that stuff. Maybe, maybe that's not a right way to whip it, but you know, I, I think seem to be things seem to be getting better and then they get worse again. It's like, I don't know. That's the disheartening part is, is you want to see things get better. You want to see end to, to oppression and to prejudice and to fighting between people who should just acknowledge each other as people. And, And it's so sad because the more you see it happening, the more you feel like it's not going to change. And then you go down that black hole of, you know, how, how can you possibly have a good outlook when it's constantly just repeating itself over and over again? Yeah, it is. It's, yeah, like I said earlier, just ask the Jewish folks. You know, it's. And and you know, I I read an interesting article earlier today, and I, you know, I, I hesitate to spend too much time on this because you know this show is we try hard not to get into politics or religion, so I think we're uh, we're treading in uh, dangerous waters right now. But should I, you know, should I keep I, my hand over the mute button, Jason? Well, you know, no, because I'm I'm going to behave. But, uh, you know, I read an article earlier because you you made a, a statement. And, and I think that, you know, uh, Richard here in the in the comments had comments commented also that, you know, anger and violence doesn't solve things. Um, and I did read an article that it was kind of shocking about all the major changes that have happened uh, 
throughout this country's history. And most of the major changes have been incited by violence. And it was like, that's what it took for anyone to actually make a change. And I think that that's a frightening, a frightening thing because we don't, we don't want violence, but we also don't want um, the horrible, horrible crap that's going on right now. But now that I've said my piece, I'm going to pull us right out of that conversation. Uh, that way I had the last word. Um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be turning this over to uh, Michael here, but I do want to say, uh, Deborah, you said that, uh, you know, she had had the power of life and death, you know, if she moved her hand one way or another. And I have a receptionist that I work with that I think would love to have that power. Oh, because she's, she's so feisty. And I'm like, I could just see her. Nope. That customer's got to go. Um, anyhow, it's going to remind me of her. And then, uh, you know, Micah, or where, where was it here? Um, I thought this was really interesting. Uh, Richard says uh, his uncle was a body transport in an army dump truck in Vietnam. No one was allowed to speak of the war in his presence. And that's, you know, that's pretty powerful because I'm sure it was an enormous trigger. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I can't, I can't even imagine something like that. You know, Michael, how, how was it for you writing these books that were so closely tied into your family history? You know, what, what did you experience when you took that journey? Um, probably uh, it was, it was cathartic, like you said, in a way, uh, but there's also a certain amount of pride in it. You know, uh, we, Deborah is just talking about how things ebb and flow, how things don't change as far as prejudices. Uh, I grew up with, as an Irish Catholic in, um, in a time when Irish uh, Catholics were not very popular and we were taking your jobs. <laughs> and, uh, that Same sort here. of thing, but <laughs> the uh, 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 my ancestors were Oklahoma Sooners that uh, were dust bowlers, so uh, there's been plenty of that as it comes and goes. But uh, just having lived through it and and being able to take a character and make him uh, an anti-hero, but make him every man, and uh, and witness the. Um, witness it uh, and live through it and see it uh, with my eyes, but also with the perspective of uh, a worldview of, of what everyone was seeing, um, gives it enough emotional distance so that you can really paint the picture with substance and, um, and not make it uh, so personal that it's 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 like the me show and uh give people a taste of um of 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 how the scenery is going past the window so to speak and what it not only looks like but what it feels like um there were there have been uh so many transitions um uh, in the last 50 years from the time, uh, 60 years, from the time that that book started to be written. And we were just talking now about how violence doesn't change anything. Well, anybody that thinks that violence doesn't change anything missed the 1968 Democratic National Convention. 
that changed everything. <laughs> um, and that was as violent as it gets. But um, this afternoon, um, at any rate, it was an opportunity to um, relive it um, and see it again um, in the pastel of memory instead of the stark reality of vision. Um, uh, you know, as, as, as we start to remember things, kind of the, the, we tend to forget what pain feels like and we tend to forget what misery feels like. Um, and instead it's replaced by the memory of what we surmounted to get there. And uh, the hard times aren't quite so vividly colored. They're more of a pastel and the sharp edges kind of come off of them a little bit. And uh, my father couldn't talk about the war his entire life. But at the end of his life, he realized that he was a hero and that he was, that he had done something really, really noteworthy when it was too late to talk about it. And um, so his, his vision finally cleared to the point where he recognized his accomplishments. And I think that's what memory does. And if you have the ability to put yourself in that place, but with the perspective of distance, you can really tell a story. And I think that's how we change the world. I think that's how we do it. Right? I think we tell the story in a way that it makes people feel what it's like to be oppressed. And what it makes them feel how we change those things or how we want to change those things. I think that's how we motivate people. I can stand yes. on a soapbox all day long and you can tell, and I can tell you what I think you should think. And at the end, you're gonna say, wow, he's a really great speaker. <laughs> but if you read it and start to feel it, now you're a motivation for change. Wow, Michael, that was, that was everything right there. <laughs> that was everything. Michael, that was, that was, uh, that was so beautiful. It, you're so right, because if, if you don't, if you can't empathize with the, the characters or the people, yeah. then no matter what facts are presented to you, you're, you're not going to care. A hundred percent. You've, you've got to make them feel it. Man, I, I love that. Wow. Wow, I, I, I cannot one, wait to read some of your books. I, I cannot wait to get into I'll it. I'll caution you, though, Jay. Um, my daughter was reading the second book, and she said, <clears throat> I, I had to put it down. I can't read it. It's, it's too raw. Ooh. Wow. She said, it's, she said, I could only read a little at a time because it's too raw. Well, and I want to I ask you, too, because... Because of the distance, do you? My think daughter's eighteen. Oh, okay, okay. That's a baby. I, I've, I've got just a couple of years on her, I think. <laughs> uh, because of the distance and the the time be between between you know the these events and actually starting to write, do you think that actually makes the writing better when you're able to to see from a distance and and look at it more objectively or? When you start in on it, is everything just does everything just come rushing right back? Yes. <laughs> uh, the answer, I think the answer, <laughs> I think the answer is, is yes. You know, some of it comes rushing right back, and and uh, and uh, I think the trick is to harness that. But also, um, when you, 
I, I learned early on that when you when you try to write like that, when you you know when you're when you sit down and you're trying to write something that's profound or deep or something uh, like that, you can't make that happen unless you feel it. Uh, you end up writing crap, and I can't tell you how many chapters I've thrown away that were crap um, because I tried to write something that was interesting, and all I ended up doing was boring myself. <laughs> My, Michael, can you uh, quick give an, another shout out here to what the names of your books are? We have uh, someone asking what the titles were again. Uh, the first book is Bless Me, Father. Uh, because of my Irish Catholic, bless me, Father. And the second one is, for I have sinned. Um, and then the third book, which is not out yet, uh, is The Heretic. Okay, wonderful. And that and that was for uh, Julia, who had uh, commented, asking what the, the titles were. And that, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. That's what you say when you get into the uh, confessional with your priest. So that's, that's good. It's it's like you're confessing these stories. I, I like that idea. Very cool. Oh, well, I, I feel like this has been an amazing conversation, and I don't even know how it all started. But Katie, what were we supposed to be talking about today? No, no, no. no. We naturally went off topic and it was wonderful. So we're going to stay on this new train of, of topic. I'm putting the links for you guys who are in our, our live chat right now. I've just put the links up to find both Michael and Deborah if you're looking for their books. And we will also yep. put them in the uh, the comments, or sorry, the uh, um, show information at the end of the show as well. So that'll Thank be on you. our now, this is a question for, for both of you, too. Can you tell me a little bit about how you went about researching these these projects? You know, you know, for some of the stuff, you you already have the, the knowledge, you know, or the experience. But how did you go about researching these events, especially if they were, you know, Deborah, in your case, you know, 300 years ago? For, you know? A couple, a couple hundred. Yes. Well, she'll actually have been uh, in 2022 will have been dead for 200 years. So, um, like I said, I, I there's books out there about Nancy Ward and Adekulakula, Okanastoa and Motoy. So, of course, I read everything I could get my hands on there. And um, I just went to the area. I spent months up there just researching and speaking to the locals about different, you know, stories that they had heard over the years about my grandmother and, you know, just kind of tried to blend in to the background, so to speak, and made friends and loved that Lottie's Diner up there in Benton, Tennessee, home of the Caddyhead Biscuit. You know, it just, and I go back all the time. They greet me like an old friend and they've all read my book and because she's buried right, you know, there in Benton, Tennessee. I was on a walkabout back in uh, 2009 and my cousin called and she said, hey, can you, did you know our grandmother had a boat ramp and a park? you know, named after her in Benton, Tennessee. I said, no, didn't have any idea. She says, well, can you go? And I said, well, I'm in Chattanooga. Not in Chattanooga. I was in Charleston, rather. And Charleston, Chattanooga, you know, there's a line there, but not one that gets there easily. So I backtracked and went. And when I got there, it's where she was buried. It's her burial site. Uh -huh. Her, um, my um, seventh grade uncle and um, my sixth grade uncle are also buried there. So her brother and her son were buried there. And I believe that's where they pulled out 
uh, my seventh great grandfather right through there somewhere. And uh, cause it was land that my grandmother's brother uh, what had been living on for some time. So I think that's where he went. So it was an odd, odd experience for me when I went there and saw, you know, there's my history and walking up there in the gardens and the plants that were there. It just, you know, kind of really made my life come together. And I understood more maybe what my training had been throughout life to write this book because nature is is such an integral part of the Cherokee people and, and Native Americans in general. You know, we were in tune with nature like no other. And, you know, that's how we found the white folks that would come to our territories. We could smell them. They were dirty. And you could smell them long before they ever got to your house. So that's how we people bathed every day, no matter how cold it was, unless you were like dying, you know, then they didn't force you. But for the most part, you know, we were very clean people. And so the traditions of how they lived and, you know, are all brought into this book so people can kind of get an understanding for what it would be like to live in survival mode, like in PTSD mode with adrenaline at heightened all the time, because that's the way those people lived. You had to be on guard 24 seven, anything and everything wanted to kill you. And um, including other people wanted to kill you. You had the French, you had the British, you had the Spanish, the Vikings, you know, everybody wanted this land. So, you know, of course we were in danger all the time. Well, and thankfully the, the white people all smelled like brute cologne, right? So it was, no, it no, it's Dracar easy. Noir. Yeah, that's right, Dracar Noir. Oh man, I had that when I was in high school. Um, you know, <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. That is just grown worthy. <laughs> Everybody got that in their stocking at one point. Nowadays, no, it's gonna, that's right, Axe body spray. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna interrupt this question real quick from a for a question from a uh, uh, Joe Compton who runs the Go Indie Now uh, Show Network. Uh, question for both guests. You both mentioned readers have been overwhelmed or affected by your books, but I want to know while you were writing them. Was there some really hard scenes for you to get through? And were there some scenes that hit the cutting room floor because of their of their effect on you while writing them? Yes, yes. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, a, a lot of anger came out in the first couple drafts of my book. And I as I was, you know, redrafting them, I kept trying to pull some of that anger back because it, it did, it came through, you know, and I didn't want to write an, an angry book. I wanted to write something that, you know, folks could get an idea of, of what native American people were like, what their hearts were, you know, what they were thinking, you know, and, you know, maybe they could understand uh, the native American people better, um, you know, after having read my book. So I wanted to convey that to the readers. And, you know, of course, it's it's got to do with, you know, life and death and birth. And, you know, so those things are all very, you know, interesting in a hospital setting, let alone when you're on a dirt floor, you know, in the middle of the wilderness. So, yeah, those things were were very, you know, heart wrenching to write. And, yeah, some of it did have to hit the floor. Sure. Okay. Michael, Michael, what about you? 
absolutely. <laughs> there were there there are some uh, that were uh, very hard and uh, and hard for me to still read. Uh, and uh, the, the, if I if I look back at them, I, I'm satisfied with the way they came out. But uh, uh, like my daughter said, they're kind of raw uh, because they needed they needed to be raw, and um, and as a result, uh, they had to be revisited quite a few times because uh, I I. I kept trying to soften them <laughs> in my, you know, you, you don't want to make it the way it is, but you have to. Um, one scene in particular where, um, I, I don't know if you know what an FNG is. Um, <laughs> it's a military term. Uh, FN new guy. And, uh, Okay. And uh, F and G's are always uh, trouble um, because they've got uh, live ammo and and lots of scared, and so they always uh, try to put them someplace where they can't hurt people. <laughs> and uh, uh, there's a there's a in the first book, as a matter of fact, um, there's a couple of F and G's that are on a recon patrol and they get ambushed. And the horror of of uh, what what's happening around them uh, just transcends their training, and uh, the 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 shock of uh, the impact of what's going on around them, and they they have to think on their feet for a few minutes, and they have to defend themselves, and. It is one of the hardest things that I ever wrote. That is tough. And did, did that make it into so, the final um, draft? It did. It's the first chapter of the first book. Whoa. Okay. 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 Now there there is a a kind of, and this was this is from a movie. <laughs> this is um, uh, from uh, the movie Platoon, which is an older movie now with uh, Charlie Sheen and uh, Willem Dafoe. And um, in that movie, they had um, one of the things that they, the soldiers that had been in country for longer were, were saying is that your life is actually worth more if you've been there longer. You know, you, you have more perceived value. Is that a thing or is that, was that just in a movie? No. Uh, you're your first 30 days and your last 30 days are your are the two toughest times that you're there and that's not just in vietnam that's anywhere um it, there's a there's a it doesn't make any difference how trained you are until um the practical exam is on the desk right I, I have a feeling that Rebecca is reading your book as she's watching this show, uh, which, which is pretty typical of Rebecca. <laughs> she's our speed reader. Uh, well, well I'm sorry, she doesn't like the prologue. Well, that's no, that's a compliment when you get an, an uh, exclamation from her. Um, that's definitely a compliment. Well, Michael, can you tell me a little bit about the, the research that went into your books? 
Oh, yeah, that's where we were going, wasn't it? <laughs> that was where we were going at one time. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, the book trend is, is, is it's, an, it's a continental uh, uh, scene. He travels quite a bit, uh, the character. And so um, the original archives uh, are at the Chicago Public Library for a lot of the uh, things that were described. Um, there's a scene in, in the, the book about uh, uh, the boy lives through the Ar Our Lady of Angels fire in 1958, where um, uh, a Catholic school caught fire and uh, dozen, tens of, uh, dozens of children were killed and nuns and everything else. And uh, he has to, and that all that research is, is uh, contained in there. The second book was easier because there's a lot of World War II footage that's that's available, and um, um, because my father wouldn't tell me about it, I ended up having to crawl through B-17 bombers to see. My dad was a little guy. For instance, this is a good this is a good example of it. Um, tail gunners were little; they had to be little. My dad was five foot four; he never weighed more than 125 pounds. And the reason that it, he was a tail gunner was you had to crawl on your belly down the tail to get into the turret at the back of the plane, which meant that you took your parachute off and left it in the bomb bay in order to get there. And so you had to have a little guy that would do it. But if a plane crashed, it guaranteed that the tail gunner was dead because he had no parachute. And so you, I had to crawl in there and I actually can't get down the tail. And I'm not a big guy. Um, and so I had to do a lot of schematics and different things like that. Uh, but luckily, uh, that Google is a marvelous thing. So I did a lot of research that way. Wow. And for the third one, um, third one is, is, is mostly personal experience. And that's why it's called The Heretic. <laughs> How much harder was it to write the third one, being that it's personal experience versus um, historical reference? Well, uh, all three are somewhat personal, but the third one um, was the hardest to write and took the longest. Um, and and it once again, uh, it you don't want to glorify the experience because you assume people know that it's you. And uh, the last thing you want to, you want to tell a story, not make a hero. And uh, so uh, that took a little bit of uh, uh, soul searching in order to do that and, and make it a story about a person, a character, instead of uh, making it about me. <laughs> So it was fun in a different way and, and difficult. How, how, how do you approach that? Because you said before when you were talking about this story that um, you were you were making the character, this, this man who had gone to war, he had become a criminal, but he was also every man kind of thing. He was, he was an ordinary person as well. You know, how do you go about creating a character that has seen or done extraordinary things, but is still an everyday person, you know, that, that an everyday person can relate to, you know, how did, how did you do that? 
Well, we all have an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. And um, lots of times we walk a razor's edge between the two, um, I think. Uh, and uh, fortune and chance play a lot, have a lot to do with, you know, which side we, we choose. And uh, in, in the case of uh, Emma Casey, who is the, the, the anti-hero, um, He's a he's a good man who uh, he's a who's trying to be a bad man because he thinks being a good man is weak, and in the end, um, he kind of finds out that uh, he might as well just accept the fact that he's not such a bad guy after all. But it takes him a long time. Now, Deborah, did you? I'm not sure if you heard that question, but um, you know, when you're when you're writing this book, you know, did you did you have any special techniques or, or tricks that you use to uh, try to help readers relate more to your characters? No, I, this book was written from the heart, and it was almost like I wasn't connected in a certain sort of way. It was. I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's like asking a, a musician where to come from. And so you just have to, um, you know, you have to edit yourself and you want the, the, um, the reader to empathize with you and empathize with your character and teach all at the same time. So combining all those things can get real interesting. And I didn't put a whole lot of thought into that. It just happened. So, I, you know, God gave me a book, you know, that's, okay. that's the thing I can, that, you know, I use no, I use no magical techniques. In other words, I did <laughs> high school, you know, no. Well, and, and I have to say, you should never ask a musician where it came from, because sometimes you won't like the answer. I, I've done that. And then I got the answer. And I was like, oh, all right, well, <laughs> this song isn't as cool for me now, <laughs> Lyrical, <laughs> lyrical yes. to the music. The music, uh, the music. <laughs> well, and you know when when I'm when I'm writing my characters, and it's not so well. Lately, it's been more conscious, uh, a more conscious decision because my my editors, uh, you know, hound me about it. But you know, when I'm writing a, a character, I'm I'm trying to, in my head at least, experience what they're experiencing. Experiencing, so I, I have a little bit of those emotions so that when I'm writing, I'd be like, this is how I would feel in these scenes. And it may not be a hundred percent accurate because I haven't been in those situations. Um, but I, I feel like that does help to uh, make things more relatable. If, you know, if you're putting your real emotions in there while you're writing it, um, I think you're more likely to connect with people. And uh, Rebecca Jonesy says, OMG, the staircase scenes, this is dot, dot, dot. Wow. Rebecca, we have no idea what you're talking about. The only person who knows what you're talking about is Michael over there. The rest of us don't what? know. She's selling it, though. She's <laughs> selling it, for sure. Well, I, Michael, everybody's going to be buying your, your book tonight. And Deborah, you too, because I am I cannot wait to hear about this history. It's, it's so exciting to me. It's uh, beautiful. Uh, it's beautiful. Katie, it's a beautiful you, story. 
That's you the, haven't the said thing about <laughs> historical fiction is is you not only or, or not even historical fiction, but just any historical book is is you get to gain new perspective. You get to learn things that you didn't know before, and and it enriches your life. You you can see things that weren't there a few minutes ago. It's almost like an open wound. Writing a book is like an open wound. We're opening ourselves up, and people get to peer into who we are as people. And that's a, a personal thing, but yet we're sharing it with the world. So, you know, it's it, it's a different genre. You know, we're um, only 1% of all the people that ever born write a book and publish it. So it's, we're in a, we're one percenters for starters. <laughs> and, yeah, I may not, I may not be there with this, but I'm a one percenter. I wrote a book and, and managed to get it published. So, you know, and less, less than 10% of all books ever written sell more than a thousand copies. So, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to, to lay yourself bare for, for everybody. For sure. Yeah. There, there, there. My my last release was a, a collection of uh, horror stories, which people for some reason don't uh, don't give a lot of weight to because they say horror. You know, it's going to be blood and guts and sex and gore, and it's really not all it is. It's there's a lot of humanity in horror, um, but the 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 most powerful story in the book to me wasn't even really horror. It was just a about a, a young girl who was a neurodivergent, uh, which is, you know, somewhere on the autism spectrum and experiences some some major life changes. And those changes for her were horror. They were horrific. Um, and my goal was just to to push something new into the into the reader's face and, and to kind of get under their skin a little bit with it. And I think I think that if we if we give the characters or or the you know historical figures enough enough life and enough emotion that people could really connect with them and you could really make a difference with it and um, yeah so to the, the change we were talking about before you have to give people perspective and the only way they can get perspective is being able to connect with absolutely they didn't understand before absolutely wow. I could I write like a horror story and it would just be about a family reunion. <laughs> that is a horror you story. Family like that? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my worst fear. <laughs> my mother's worst fear too. I got somebody yeah, pressing me to write my story and I'm going, I don't think my family's ready for that. No. <laughs> Yeah, my my horror story could just be a person walks into a crowded room. That's, that's, <laughs> it. that's the end. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Jay. Oh yeah, yeah. Silently cheering you on, Jay. <laughs> oh goodness. Well, Rebecca, or not Rebecca. I'm I'm looking at the comments at Rebecca, and I'm looking at your face and calling you Rebecca. Uh, Katie, is there anything else we're supposed to be talking about tonight? No, you know how our yeah. shows go. I know, I but I want to make sure we're not missing anything. Direction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to, to give uh, uh, each of you the chance. I know we've already talked about what uh, your books are and what's going on with them, um, which was wonderful because you both have fantastic books, it sounds like. Um, but as we're wrapping up the show, I'd like to give you the opportunity to kind of promote your, your books uh, one more time here. Um, I want to start with uh, Deborah. You want to just give us another uh, quick uh, title sure. and recap and where we can find it? 
Yes, um, it's Woman of Many Names by Deborah S. Yates, and it's available. You have Barnes and Noble Books, a million, Amazon, and if you go to Woman of Many Names, um, www.woman of many names, you can order it that way also. And um, she, she has a Facebook page, Woman of Many Names. So, yeah, just like that. So, um, it, I hope that people will pick it up and read it and enjoy it and pass it on down to somebody else that might enjoy reading it also. Wonderful. Oh, Michael, you want to tell us once more about your books and where we can find them? <laughs> um, the, there, there are three books, all uh, with the same character, Emmett Casey, um, in Emmett Casey Chronicles. Uh, the first is Bless Me, Father. The second is For I Have Sinned. Uh, the third will be out in just a few weeks, all available on Amazon. The third will be The Heretic. And will be the final chapter in the series in the story of Emmett Casey, um, and it will follow from uh, over the last sixty years of history, uh, all seen through one man's eyes. Fabulous. What about you, Katie? Do you have anything you want to promote tonight? Honestly, no. <laughs> I've been so out of the game this last month. I, I, I'm still figuring out what normal is. Yeah, we all are. I understand. I understand. Yeah. Well, I, I have a book coming out on uh, June 25th called Pathosis. Yes. And it is a uh, it, it's part of what's going to be a series of uh, kind of the earth trying to reclaim itself. But this one is about a, first one's a, it's about a pandemic and we're right in the middle of the pandemic. So you can't get better timing than that. Um, but uh, yeah. June 25th, uh, <laughs> Pathosis will be out from a. Uh, Three Furies Press, and you can actually pre-order it right now. Just go to threefuriespress.com and look for Jason Lavelle, and you'll find it. Wonderful. I forgot to plug my publisher. Oh, yeah, plug If it. I can, Jay. Yeah. Uh, the books are available through Indies uh, United Publishing or on my website at michaeldsbooks.com. Sorry. Okay. Wonderful. No, perfect. And then I, I'll tell you what, we, why don't you guys uh, plug your, your publicist because you both have the same publicist, I think. Yes, right? we do. Yes. Bruce Warzniak. He is from Valrico, Florida. And um, he's been with me now for about four, almost five years. We're still doing things. So it's, it's been a great adventure and, and he's a great guy. And we're praying for him and his family right now. His sisters have not been well. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate uh, Bruce sending you guys our way. It's It's been fantastic talking to you. It's been but fun. We, yeah. Well, we are about at the end of our showtime tonight, guys. I want to give another shout out to Creative Edge Publicity, um, who helps to make this show possible. Uh, Creative Edge, your brand, your future. And that's all for tonight, guys. But if you like the show's please, please share it around. There's going to be an instant replay up soon and on YouTube and Facebook, and you can show all your friends and uh, yeah, you know, leave us a review, like it, leave us a comment. We love it. And to thank you for everyone that's been in the comment gallery tonight. There was a lot of people watching and commenting. We really appreciate it. Uh, we like what you add to the show and the, the conversation. So until next week, guys, see you later. Thank you.